Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, Sassy Speculumites. Welcome back to part two of our STI chat. There was just way too much information about STIs, and I want each episode to be digestible enough that you can actually retain some of the information, and no one also wants to listen to a lecture for too long. So here we are with part two of STIs. Let me know if for any reason you hate the fact that I'm breaking up an episode into two parts, because if multiple people tell me that, then of course I'll switch back with these long episodes. I know when I'm endlessly scrolling through TikTok, part twos and threes drive me absolutely bananas, and I'm just very unlikely to attempt to find part two, so let me know if I'm doing that to you with episodes. Anywho's, welcome back everyone to our 11th episode. I've made it past 10, which I'm very proud of and shocked by. If you've made it to this episode so far, you are either really enjoying the podcast or you're my mom and you've committed to forcing yourself to listening to me yammer on, even though you hate podcasts with an intense passion. But no matter which category you find yourself in, please share Sassy Speculum with your friends and family who are interested in women's health or just interested in learning more about their bodies in general. I am finally committing to a larger social media presence, but I also need your support of talking about the podcast for it to continue to grow. So please keep talking and sharing my voice as always. Please follow, rate, and review the podcast as well when you can. It literally takes pushing like one or two buttons to do, so it's pretty easy. Okay, I think that's all of it for housekeeping stuff. Well, kind of. If you ever want to contact me, you can do so on social media at Sassy Speculum via email at sassyspeculum at gmail.com. Or if you would prefer to be anonymous, there is a form that you can fill out on my website at www.beatingheartdoula.com. This is also where you can find Sassy Speculum swag and links to all the other things. Okay, that really was all the housekeeping stuff. Let's dive into STIs part dos. So last episode, I covered herpes, chlamydia, and gonorrhea, and pelvic inflammatory disease, HIV, and AIDS. If you haven't listened to that episode yet and you want to learn about those things, press pause and go listen. I promise to still be here when you get back. Today, we're going to be talking about four of the other top STIs as well as one other which isn't really considered to be one of the top, but it's hella common, so I think we should talk about it, and I get to make the decision, so yay. Today we're going to be covering syphilis, human papillomavirus, or HPV, trichomonas, hepatitis B, and pubic lice. So let's just jump right in, starting with HPV. Human papillomavirus is one of the most common STIs out there, and actually 80 to 85% of sexually active people will get genital HPV at some point in their lives. And most people won't ever know because there are usually no symptoms and it goes away on its own, oftentimes without even causing any serious health problems. But the biggest and most serious health problem that does arise from some HPV infections is cervical cancer in women. Actually, virtually all cervical cancers are directly causally related to an HPV infection. When you get a pap smear, these are the things that doctors are looking for to see if there are changes to the skin cells of the cervix to see if HPV is present, and if so, which strains they are. There are many different strains of HPV, and some are high risk and others are low risk, but there isn't really anything in between. It's either low or high. The family of HPV viruses has over 180 strains, of which 40 are able to infect the cells of the genitalia, with approximately 15 of them being designated as high risk. Over the past two years with COVID, we have all learned a lot more about viruses than we ever knew before. Even someone who knew nothing of science beyond their high school classes, now they know a lot more than they probably ever expected to. 
With your viral knowledge that you have now, you may be wondering, wait a second, how can a virus turn into a cancer? That doesn't quite make sense. But if HPV can do it, why doesn't COVID, the common cold, the flu, or any other viruses cause cancer? And the fact is, it's actually not super rare. HPV isn't the only virus out there that has been linked to cancer. Epstein-Barr, also known as the virus that causes mononucleosis, or mono, has been linked to four different types of cancer, hepatitis B and C, have been linked to liver and non-Hodgkin lymphoma cancers. HIV has been linked to nine different cancers. And human herpes virus 8 has been linked with Kaposi sarcoma, a type of skin cancer, and so on and so forth. HPV is not a lone wolf in this trend, unfortunately. If you think about a wart, like the ones that grow on your fingers, hands, or like the bottom of your foot, or if you don't have experience with those, then imagine a witch's big warty nose. What is a wart? It's thickened skin. It's a bunch of skin cells growing on top of each other in a haphazard way. Now, what is cancer? Cancer, to put it very simply, is also a bunch of cells growing together in a haphazard way. HPV is the virus that causes warts in general, both like the ones on your hands and feet or the ones found on a penis, butt, vulva, or in the vagina. With haphazardly grown new cells, this opens up the possibility of mistakes to be made in how they're laid down or malignant transformations of cellular makeup therefore opening the door for cancer in the warts infected with the high-risk HPV strains. The two worst strains are HPV 16 and 18. These account for 25% of low-grade lesions found in the cervix, 50-60% to of high-grade lesions, and 70% of cervical cancers. But some other big players to watch out for are HPV 31, 33, 35, 45, 52, and 58. So since HPV is so common, how can you lower your risk? Well, the safest way to prevent HPV is to not have sex. But that's boring and nobody actually does that. And with that mindset, we're never going to teach our children anything. So instead of putting blinders on and telling people to just never have sex, let's actually talk about how to lower the risk of HPV. The age at which you have sex for the first time and the number of partners you have both are risk factors for acquiring HPV, but they're opposite. The younger you are for your first bone and the more partners you have throughout your life both make you more susceptible to HPV. Smoking cigarettes increases your chances of HPV and literally all cancers, except, fun fact here, cigarette smoking is believed to lower the risk of endometrial cancer due to some anti-estrogen mechanisms. But with HPV, smoking dramatically increases your chance of infection and therefore cervical cancer. Use of oral contraceptive pills for more than five years also increases, which is a talk for another time, as I plan to do a deep dive into birth control pills in the future. And finally, exposure to radiation and UV light is also considered a risk factor. Now, I don't know about you, but I fit into three of those four factors, and so do a lot of other people, a large majority of them fitting into all four. Does that mean that we will all get HPV and die of cervical cancer? No, of course not. Remember that only some strains of HPV are connected to cervical cancer, and 90% of genital HPV infections resolve themselves in two to five years, without you even knowing that it was there. Some other less common risk factors out there, positive HIV status due to the immunodeficiency that this creates, chlamydia infections, either past or present, cause a greater expression of the HPV-16 strain, Having herpes simplex 2, remember from last week that this is the herpes that, in general, lives around the genitals. This increases the HPV's ability to sneak its DNA into our cells. 
An unbalanced vaginal flora can increase the risk of low-grade cervical cancer, which can be like candida or yeast infections or bacterial vaginosis. Obesity affects the chances of an adenocarcinoma forming. This is one of the two most common cancers of the cervix. And of course, no naturopath can skip saying this as a risk factor, but diet, exercise, lifestyle, and stress can either potentiate health or they can potentiate illness. So while you can't always play a role in lowering the other risk factors, you can always better your overall health status to lower some of them. But let's dive into something I said a little bit ago, because it's one thing to tell you about all these risk factors, but it's another thing to explain why and how these have an effect on your body. Just like I've told you all a million times with my endometriosis story, when I tried to go off all hormones and to handle my endometriosis naturally, all doctors advised me not to do it, but no one actually told me why or that my endometriosis would progressively worsen if I did this, and I would have definitely done things differently had I known that. Education is a key piece of healthcare that many traditional doctors miss out on or glaze over. So beyond the whole smoking is bad for you trope, why does smoking increase one's chance for cervical dysplasia, HPV, and the development of cervical cancer? This is threefold. One, metabolites of nicotine are concentrated in the cervical tissue. Studies have shown that nicotine and continine are present in the cervical mucus of smokers, indicating that the inhaled tobacco-specific carcinogens can become bloodborne and transport to the cervix where they can damage cellular DNA, which is the basis of cancer. Your cervical mucus is the sperm elevator. It's what carries the sperm from the vagina into the uterus. Imagine what can happen if you are or have been recently a daily smoker and you get pregnant. That sperm has been in direct contact with carcinogens before it's even gotten to the egg. Number two, cigarette smoking lowers your immune response in general. This increases the chances for persistent infection and an inability to clear out the gunked up cells and make new ones. And third, Long-term nicotine exposure causes persistent cell reproduction and the inhibition of cell death, and the stimulation of VEGF, which increases microblood vessel density. So in other words, nicotine causes excessive cell growth with an inability to kill off atypical cells, and all of those cells have increased vasculature, all things that you do not want in cancer. So there you have it, three reasons to stop smoking if you are at all concerned about your HPV and cervical cancer risk. And an added benefit, there has been significant evidence that quitting smoking significantly increases the reduction of HPV lesions, so even more reason. With the aforementioned oral birth control pills contributing to the cervical cancer risk, that's scary. I was one of those teenagers who got put on birth control very early to control my period symptoms, just like thousands of others. And unfortunately, we just didn't have the knowledge we do now about how bad long-term OCP use can be for women. Oral contraceptive pills, or OCPs for short, are usually a mixture of estrogen and progesterone shoved into a teeny tiny pill, taken daily at exactly the same time every day, or it's not as effective as it could be. Estrogen treatment has been studied to increase reproduction of the cells in the cervix and vagina. It also causes sensitivity to the transformation zone to the development of precancerous lesions. And the transformation zone is the most common place for cervical cancer to show up in general, and estrogen just makes it that much more susceptible. Estrogen also enhances the proteins that I talked about earlier that literally cause cancer. Estrogen decreases parts of your immune system that are supposed to clean up the bad stuff, and there's about a million other mechanisms of action correlated with OCP use and cervical cancer. Do people tell us this when they're prescribing 12-year-olds birth control? Nope. 
For use of OCPs for under five years, your risk of cervical cancer is about 10%. For five to nine years, that risk goes up to 60%. And for 10 years of use or more, that risk increases to 120%. Whoa, that is huge, guys. On the bright side, though, risk does decline after stopping OCPs by 10 or more years. That risk level returns to that of never using OCPs. Thank goodness. On that good news note, let's switch from all this doom and gloom to how we protect ourselves from cervical cancer. As I mentioned at the beginning, HPV and cervical cancers are screened with what's called a pap smear. And January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, so I'm sneaking all this info in at the last minute since this episode is coming out January 30th. Pap smears come from the Cornell professor George Papanicolaou, I hope I said that right, who discovered in 1928 that one could discern the differences between normal cells and cancerous cells from the cervix under a microscope. However, he was not the first person to practice this. In 1927, Romanian physician R.L. Babs babes, used a platinum loop to collect cells from a cervix to look for cancer. In Romania, to honor babes, we're going to call them that, they refer to the test as method babes instead of a pap. But Mr. Pap got all of the credit, probably because he lived in America and not Romania, and he went on to write four books and hundreds of articles, winning tons of awards for his medical advances. He was even featured on Greek money and stamps, as well as here in the U.S., a 13-cent postage stamp in 1978. But at least he didn't steal his method from a woman like so many other famous scientists do. At present time, the USPSTF, also known as the United States Preventative Services Task Force, recommends cervical cancer screening for all people with a vagina aged 21 to 29 every three years with cervical cytology alone. Cervical cytology is the collection and assessment of the cells of the cervix. For people with a vagina aged 30 to 65, recommendations of screening are also every three years with cytology alone, every five years with high-risk HPV testing alone, or every five years with HPV testing in combination with cytology. Which might sound confusing, like why wouldn't you just automatically look for HPV if it's so prevalent, especially in people 21 to 29, since the younger you are, the more likely you are to get it. Why does the HPV portion only count for people over 30? Because HPV is so prevalent in our society, especially in younger people, it isn't really considered standard of care to look for HPV if the cervical cells aren't showing up as signs of cervical cancer. Because if it is there and it's not changing the cells and causing that excessive haphazard growth, then it's probably just one of the common infections that goes away on its own and it doesn't cause further consequences. And there are mixed beliefs about diagnosing someone with something that isn't actually affecting them or it's showing symptoms. So you got your pap done, now what? Well, we send it off to the lab and about a week later we have results. The most common results can be normal. This means no abnormal cervical cells were found. Unsatisfactory. This sucks because it means that you'll have to go back and get another one. This can be for a multitude of reasons, like enough cells weren't collected, too much or the wrong lubrication was used on the speculum. The cells could also be clumped together or hidden by blood or cervical mucus. And unfortunately, you would need to repeat your pap in two to four months. Or it can be abnormal. This does not necessarily mean that you have cervical cancer. There are multiple different subcategories of abnormal, including ascus, 
This is the most common abnormal pap finding, meaning that the cells just don't quite look normal, but it's not clear if the changes are from HPV infection. Other things that can cause ascus are irritation, yeast infections, uterine polyps, pregnancy, or menopause. These cells are abnormal, but not related to cancer. If the pap comes back ascus, it will automatically run an HPV test to see if the cellular changes are from HPV or not. And if it's not HPV, it's from one of those other reasons. Another option that can come back as abnormal is LCIL, meaning low-grade changes that are caused by HPV infection. Another one is HCIL, moderately or severely abnormal cervical cells that could become cancer in the future if not treated. And the last option, cervical cancer, which obviously means cervical cancer cells have been identified. There are other options, but those are the most common. The screening recommendations used to be based on a person's results of their last pap. Like if you have HCIL, come back in X amount of time, or ASCAS, come back in Y amount of time. But recently, these guidelines have changed, and now follow-up is actually based on risk. You and your doctor can decide what is best for you. You can return for a repeat pap in one to three years. You can have a colposcopy and biopsy, or receive treatment like a LEAP, cold knife conization, laser therapy, cryotherapy, escharotic treatment, or a hysterectomy, which is usually reserved for pretty severe cancerous lesions. Most people don't just randomly choose that. If you just have vaginal warts, these can be treated by many providers with trichloroacetic acid or bichloroacetic acid. And if your doctor isn't willing to do this in nine months, come see me and I'll get her done for you. This is a treatment that needs to be done once per week by a provider, but it's super easy and a hell of a lot less painful than someone taking a chunk of your cervix out. We also have a lot of treatment ideas from a naturopathic standpoint that have been clinically studied and proven effective for treating HPV. I don't personally subscribe to the, well, we found it, let's not do anything and come back in three years and we'll see what's up method. I would prefer to nip something in the bud when it's found and support your body with overall healing. So while conventional medicine can't do much for a positive HPV but no cancer present, Naturopaths sure as hell can. Finally, before moving on from HPV, a quick PSA. HPV can also show up on your butt and in your mouth, and these can also turn into HPV-related cancers. So get those spots swabbed, too, if you're at risk. I literally had no idea I could talk about HPV for so long, but hopefully you learned something new and will go get your cervical testing done if you're due. The other STIs that I'm talking about today won't be anywhere near as long as that was. Let's move on to hepatitis B. Just like herpes and HPV, there are multiple different strains of hepatitis as well. It's something that happens with viruses, like with COVID, how we keep having new variants come out, or how the flu vaccine has to change every year because the flu changes all the time. Hepatitises are basically the same. There are five different versions of hepatitis, A, B, C, D, and E, and they are all transmitted differently. Hepatitis B and D are both sexually transmitted, as they are transmitted through blood and other bodily fluids. Hepatitis A is foodborne, C is transmitted through only blood, and E is transmitted through stool. However, A, B, and C are the most common forms of hepatitis in the United States. Hepatitis as a whole means inflammation of the liver. Your liver is located right below your right boob, tucked up underneath your rib cage. This organ is vital for processing nutrients, filtering the blood, and fighting infections. When it is inflamed, it can become damaged, and its function is then affected. Some other things that can cause inflammation of the liver are heavy alcohol use, toxins, some medications, and some medical conditions. 
As I said, hepatitis B is spread when blood, semen, cervical mucus, saliva, or other bodily fluids from an infected person enter the body of someone who is not infected. This can happen through sex, sharing needles, or other things used to shoot up drugs, or from mama to baby at birth as the baby slides down the birth canal. For most people, hepatitis B is a relatively short-term sickness, but for others, it can be a long-term infection that can actually be very life-threatening. It can cause problems like cirrhosis or liver cancer. Unfortunately, about 90% of the infants who do get hepatitis B from their mom will develop a chronic infection, while only 2-6% to of adults do. The adult trajectory goes like this. You get an acute hep B infection. In less than six months, 90% of people will resolve. 9% will continue to have positive antibodies for more than six months. And 1% will move into fulminant hepatitis, which is a rapid progression into liver failure. Of those who have the positive antibodies for more than six months, 50% will resolve without any problems. And the other 50% is broken up into being an asymptomatic carrier, meaning that you'll have the antibodies forever, but you won't have symptoms, a chronic persistent hepatitis, or a chronic active hepatitis. Those last two can also cause problems outside of the liver, like kidney problems or even widespread damage to all of your blood vessels. The chronic acute infection could also lead to hepatic cell carcinoma, a cancer of the liver, or cirrhosis, which is when the liver gets thick and fibrous with a marked degeneration of cells. Symptoms of an acute hep B infection include fever, fatigue, loss of appetite, nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, joint pain, yellowing of the skin or eyes, and most notably, Coca-Cola-colored urine and pale clay-colored poops. If you see either of those, get yourself to a doctor. Growing up, I honestly didn't know that hep B was one of the top STIs in the United States. But I truly don't remember if we talked about it in high school health class. But also, to be fair, I don't really remember much about our STI education. So I'm kind of wondering what we learned every single year in health class. I do remember learning anatomy stuff. I remember being in ninth grade. The moment that I learned that men also have pubes, I was floored. And I turned to my neighbor and was like, wait, what? And their jaw was also on the floor. I also remember learning drug and alcohol stuff. Our campus police officer, who actually was discovered to be a sex offender shortly after I left high school, he brought in drunk goggles that distorted our vision and had us try to walk in a straight line to encourage us to never get drunk because we would look stupid in front of our friends. But I feel like maybe he needed to take a page out of his own lesson book and just not be a rapist police officer because now he looks pretty stupid in front of his friends. But back to the point of this tangential story. I don't remember learning anything about hep B in school, so how popular can it really be if it doesn't hit the usual knowledge bell like gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis do? Well, in 2018, there was an estimated 21,600 acute cases of hep B, which has been a pretty stable rate for hep B, with only a slight increase occurring in 2017. As for chronic hep B, between 880,000 and 1.89 million people are living with chronic hep B infections in the United States, two-thirds of which may be completely unaware of their infection. Chronic hep B disproportionately affects people born outside of the U.S., while accounting for only 14% of the general population, non-U.S. born people account for 69% of the U.S. population living with chronic hep B. Want to know something that just like totally boggles my mind? Hep B can survive outside the body and remain infectious for at least seven days. That means if you're cleaning up someone's dried blood, which hopefully isn't too frequently in your life, 
or if you're handling things that have possibly touched blood, even micro amounts of blood, you should probably snap on some gloves because that blood can still carry infectious hepatitis infection. For seven days! Isn't that insane? My cat can't survive for seven days without TLC. How can a virus and dried up blood do it? Crazy shit. On the bright side, though, because I gotta have a bright side for every STI today, apparently, if you were given the regular childhood vaccinations in the United States, you were most likely already been vaccinated against Hep B. Yay! Moving along, let's talk syphilis now. Syphilis is a chronic systemic infectious process caused by a bacterial spirochete called Trypanema pallidum. This was really prevalent in the 1980s in the United States, but by 1991, it declined sharply. However, in 2001, it has continued to increase with a sharp increase in women who have sex with men in 2019 that has continued to rise. Syphilis is obviously a sexually transmitted infection, that's why we're talking about it here, and it can only be contracted during vagina, anal, or oral sex, or by a mother with syphilis to her unborn baby, which we talked a little bit in part one of this episode, and it's highly, highly lethal to babies, unfortunately with a huge majority of them dying shortly after being born. So screening of pregnant mothers is routinely done with at least one test done in pregnancy. The CDC seemed like it was important to state that you cannot get syphilis through toilet seats, doorknobs, swimming pools, hot tubs, bathtubs, sharing clothes, or sharing utensils. I'm not sure why that was listed only under syphilis and not the billions of other STIs that I've done research on in the past few weeks, but apparently it needed to be said. So... I said it here in case people needed to hear it as well. Two weeks ago, a few days after part one episode came out, I was talking to my mom and I was taking her stitches out of her face on my brother's bathroom floor because, I mean, can you even call yourself a doctor if you haven't performed some whack procedure on the floor of a bathroom? And she needed me to distract her while I was removing them, so she asked me about STIs and I told her about how excited I was to talk about syphilis because I think it's a really interesting infection that does some pretty crazy things to the body. She thought I was a total weirdo, but also who was the person laying on the bathroom floor needing stitches taken out of her face. Equal parts weirdo, I'd say. So let's get into it. There are four different stages of syphilis, primary, secondary, latent, and tertiary. And you'll continue to progress to the tertiary phase if you leave syphilis untreated. One enters the primary stage 10 to 90 days after being infected. In this stage, a chancra develops. A chancra is a painless ulcer lesion with raised borders and a sunken middle. In women, the chancra can appear on the cervix or the vaginal wall, making it very difficult for one to even know that it's ever there. Typically, only one chancra occurs, but multiple can occur in 30% of people. In this primary stage, you can also have painless lymphadenopathy, meaning your lymph nodes can become swollen, but they won't be tender. The chancra is the location that the syphilis bacteria entered into your body, and they usually will occur on the penis, in the vagina, or anus, rectum, or lips, and mouth. This chancra will usually last three to six weeks before going away, regardless of whether you receive treatment or not. A very important thing is even if it goes away without treatment, you still need to get treated or the infection will continue to progress. It's not just, oh, hey, there's an ulcer on my peen, and three weeks later, yo, it's gone. I'm STI clean. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. If that ulcer does not get treated, the syphilis will progress to the secondary stage. The secondary stage is characterized mostly by a rough red or reddish-brown rash that can be anywhere on your body, but is especially present on the hands and or the bottoms of your feet. 
genital warts might pop up, and those swollen lymph nodes can now be swollen all over the body, not just near the lesion. This is the stage when the syphilis spreads its little arms and legs all over your body, making it a full systemic infection. You can also experience fever, sore throat, hair loss, headaches, weight loss, muscle aches, and fatigue. 40% of the time, the actual bacteria will invade your central nervous system, which is made up by your spinal cord and brain. This is very much less than ideal, as you can probably assume. Most people don't want bacteria in their brain. If your symptoms are treated, the infection can go away, even if it's in your brain. If not treated, the infection will move to the latent and possibly tertiary stages of syphilis. As you probably know by now, a latent infection is when there are no visible signs or symptoms of infection, but the infection is still living in the body. If in this stage for more than one year, it is not considered infectious via sex, but it can still be transmitted to a baby if you were to get pregnant, so still no bueno. The last and most serious phase is tertiary syphilis. Two-thirds of people with untreated syphilis will remain in the latent stage, but when the other one-third does progress to this stage, it affects multiple organ systems, including the heart, blood vessels, muscle, and bone, as well as brain and nervous system. A person will usually reach the tertiary stage in 10 to 30 years after the initial infection, and the damage that has been done to all of these organs and parts of your body can be so severe it can kill you. Besides the fact that you can also go crazy, like literally, neurosyphilis is when the syphilis has spread to your brain and nervous system, which I mentioned before that this can happen 40% of the time in the secondary phase, so it's not uncommon by any means, and it can actually occur at any stage of syphilis. Once the syphilis bacteria get into your brain, it can take over and cause literal insanity, which can mimic every known form of mental derangement, stimulating acute mania, melancholia, terminal dementia, or can resemble paretic dementia, also known as paralysis of the insane, causing a full-body paralysis and severely debilitating dementia. The mania, psychosis, and depression can be relatively short-lived, but these symptoms are then followed by severe mental confusion and weakness with only periods of semi-lucidity. So not only will you forget everything, your personality will also change dramatically, and you can go into full psychosis and lose full function of your moving body. Other things can also happen in this stage, as if that's not enough. You can have changes in vision, even blindness, hearing loss, chronic ringing in your ears, and vertigo. So let's stay as far away from syphilis as possible, folks. On a side note, some cool-slash-not-so-cool people who have either died or been suspected to have had syphilis are Christopher Columbus, Leo Tolstoy, Friedrich Nietzsche, Al Capone, and Adolf Hitler, of which I can say Hitler definitely deserved syphilis, and whoever gave it to him is the real MVP. Moving right along... Finally, we've gotten to our final STI of the top eight most common ones in the U.S., and it's the one so few people have heard about. Why that is, I don't know. The first time I heard about it, I was either 24 or 25, and some old male doctor at the emergency room, who hadn't yet gotten a history from me, run labs, or done any physical exams, was trying to tell me that there was no way my pelvic pain was an ovarian cyst and that my boyfriend must be cheating on me because I probably had an STI. And he started listing all the ones that I've talked to you guys about and then mentioned trichomonas. And I was like, bitch, now you're just making up words. And I just asked him to leave and bring me in a different doctor because even in my distressed state, I wasn't dealing with that shit. It was an ovarian cyst, by the way, and trichomonas is also a real word and a real STI. So I don't know, at least the dude knew one thing. I will give him that. Trichomonas, 
also known as trichomoniasis, or just trick, is the most common non-viral and non-bacterial STI worldwide, actually. It comes from a parasite and is one of the top three common infectious causes of vaginal complaints, along with bacterial vaginosis and candida, aka a yeast infection. Just like I think everything else that I've talked about in the past two episodes, this can definitely present asymptomatically, but it can range from asymptomatic to a severe inflammatory disease and can either be acute or chronic. In an acute infection, symptoms in people with a vagina include a super stinky, frothy, greenish-yellow, thin vaginal discharge that is also associated with burning, itching, painful urination, frequent urination, lower abdominal pain, and or painful sex. But these symptoms only occur in 11-17% to of patients. Some of those symptoms are also commonly associated with bacterial vaginosis, candida, a UTI, gonorrhea and chlamydia, and more. So if you have weird new symptoms, but they seem similar to when you had a yeast infection X amount of years ago, best to just go get it checked out because, as my mom always says, better safe than sorry. In an acute infection, symptoms can also be worse during your period because your cervix is angry AF and it's being irritated by menstrual blood exploding out of it, and you can experience bleeding after sex for basically the same reason except exchange menstrual blood exploding out of it for a penis headbutting it repeatedly. In a chronic infection, signs and symptoms are usually milder but can include itching, pain with sex, scanty vaginal discharge... Unfortunately, you can asymptomatically carry trick for at least three months without symptoms, making it pretty hard sometimes to know who the infection came from. Upon looking at the cervix in a pelvic exam, the doctor can see what's called a strawberry cervix sometimes. As I mentioned before, your cervix is very mad and irritated, and it becomes blanketed with small red dots all over it. These are tiny hemorrhages all over the cervix, causing it to look kind of like a strawberry. Trick is one of the most treatable STIs out there, and if it's left untreated, it can lead to a UTI and bladder infection, abscesses, pelvic inflammatory disease, infertility, increased risk of HIV acquisition or transmission, and increased risk of HPV turning cancerous. In men, it's largely asymptomatic, but if left untreated, it can lead to inflammation of the prostate or epididymis, slowed sperm motility, infertility, and possibly prostate cancer. Infants born vaginally can also become infected with it if the mother is a carrier. If symptomatic, they should definitely be treated, but if asymptomatic, treatment is not considered necessary as once estrogen decreases to a normal prepubescent level, it will spontaneously resolve, which is pretty cool. So now you can say that you know all about this STI that affects more than 156 million people worldwide in 2020, but you've probably never even heard of it. And last, but certainly not least, I want to talk about pubic lice, because why the heck not? It's not necessarily an STI, but it definitely spreads through sexual contact, and remember in the last episode when I said that condoms can't prevent the spread of things that aren't covered by the condom? Well, lice definitely don't get covered by condoms, and those suckers love to make new homes in other people's pubes. Lice are also called crabs, because they not so adorably look like crabs under a microscope. Lice are a parasite, and just like the lice on your head hair, they lay eggs that are firmly attached to the hair shaft until they hatch and make more babies, causing a literal infestation of crabs on your coochie. But wait, they can also live on coarse body hair, so they can nuzzle into your legs, your armpits, your mustache, beard, eyebrows, or even eyelashes, in case you want to think about something super traumatic. 
The signs of crabs are pretty obvious. If your pubes are hella itchy and you can visibly see eggs or things crawling around in there, you've got yourself a case of the crabos, and those dudes are literally sucking out your blood and making babies all day and all night. Luckily, animals don't carry crabs, and there's no actual disease transmitted by the crabs. Although, you can get a secondary infection if you're scratching the skin open, which can happen because you're super itchy. About 3 million people in the United States get crab every year. And getting them does not mean that you're dirty or really have anything to do with hygiene in general. You just get them from close personal contact with someone else who has had them. You also can't get them from a toilet seat as they can't live for very long without being attached to your warm, blood-filled body. That's all I wanted to talk about today. We've now covered all eight of the most common STIs plus crabbies. I hope that you all enjoyed hearing about the clap, the clam, the gift that keeps on giving, crotch crickets, and the pox these past few weeks. And hopefully you learned something new that you had no idea about, and you can share that knowledge with someone who someday might need it, because you never know. One day, someone might run up to you and look totally blitzed out of their mind, but you'll be like, oh, they're experiencing psychosis from untreated syphilis. Here's a shot of penicillin, and you'll save their life. Hopefully that never actually happens, and hopefully you don't carry around shots of penicillin in your back pocket, but I don't know you. I don't know your vibe. So to recap today, we learned about human papillomavirus, and you're all going to go get your pap if you're due, hepatitis B, syphilis, trichomonas, and pubic lice. If you haven't had STI testing in a while, and after learning all this, you're interested, why the hell not? It's a quick swab or blood test, and you can have some peace of mind or get treated for whatever you've got going on down there. And get it treated ASAP before it takes over your life. We now know that everything is either treatable or controllable with the help of modern medicine and lifestyle modifications, so don't let things fester, literally. If you missed this last week, at the end of every episode now, I'm going to be flipping through a book that I got for Christmas with vagina rhymes, and I will randomly pick one to read to you. So this week's is... Oh, I literally just opened the one I did last week. (laughs) Um... My vag is a ladybug, visible in certain seasons, hiding out in certain months, and it has its reasons. Thank you all for listening this far. If you haven't already, please give Sassy Speculum a follow so you can be alerted for new episodes coming out, and please rate and review the podcast as well if you haven't yet. And go get some Sassy Speculum swag from my Etsy store or my website, www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum. You won't regret it. They're great quality and rad AF. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye!